This is Living Catholic with Father Don Wolf. Living Catholic is a fresh look at issues confronting each of us today. This show deals with living Catholic, what that means for Catholics, as well as the impact on the rest of society. You certainly don't have to be Catholic to enjoy this show. And now your host, Father Wolf. Welcome, Oklahoma, to Living Catholic. I'm Father Don Wolf, pastor at St. Eugene in Oklahoma City. I want to tell you a little about an experience I had. I have a couple of cousins who live in Germany. They're the closest relatives to my ancestors who immigrated from there. My great-grandfather came from Germany to Oklahoma just before the turn of the century and settled near Okarchi. When he left Germany, he left his two youngest brothers behind. The second youngest eventually made his way to Wisconsin after World War I. The descendants of his youngest brother are the ones that we're still in contact with there. In 1981, I had the chance for the first time to visit them in Germany. I was in Europe and was able to make contact with them. But it was only after a bit of work. My German wasn't all that good, and they had no English at all. But good intentions can trump bad conjugations, and we got along pretty well. It was ultimately a delight to sit in their houses, to eat at their tables, and to travel to the various villages and towns that they all call home. But more than seeing the sights, I saw into a corner of my life. My imagination lit up in a way I had never paid attention to before. My own flesh and blood there on their dairy farm in the flat Westphalian countryside caused me to think about how different we had become. Looking at them and the way they talked and joked and sat with one another, I was overcome with a startling recognition of the amazing contingency of life. Had my great-grandfather stayed behind, had he not braved the passage to the newly opened frontier of Oklahoma, I would be speaking German, and the Bundesrepublik would be my home. All that was theirs would be mine, or, of course, I wouldn't be at all. My great-grandfather's brother's son was there to greet me. That would make him my grandmother's first cousin, and so my first cousin once removed. Believe me, in a family like mine, we learn about all those things. He was old and wrinkled and walked with a limp. His 70 years had definitely taken a toll on him, although he was lively and funny. He'd spent most of his life on his small farm in the western part of Germany, just five kilometers from the Dutch border. For the most part, it was the sum of the world he knew. The plains and the hills of Oklahoma and the rush and bother of travel were all foreign to him. He'd earned his wrinkles in the day-to-day work of milking his cows and mucking the stalls, And he'd come upon his good humor from his wife, his five children, the youngest of whom was 17, and the friends that he had all around him. His limp came courtesy of his service on the Russian front. Like nearly all German men his age, he had been drafted into the Wehrmacht, the German armed forces, and had fought in the Second World War. His military service brought him to the east and to the war with Russia, like 70% of all the Germans in the military those years. During his time there, he was wounded and invalided to a secondary position. Eventually, he was sent to guard POWs. That was his war. He still bore the scars. And in the course of my visit, I met other men his age, all of whom had shared with him the memories of their service and the wounds that they had accumulated. These were the marks of their generation. It was his generation and that of his parents who had watched Hitler come to power. 
course, I have no idea about their political orientation or their opinions at the time. Probably they read the newspapers and wondered what was going to happen next, like most of the people did. And when Hitler began to agitate and his party began to achieve notice, most households were reeling from the great economic depression hitting all of Europe at the time, and most people were anxious to know what would happen amidst this world they did not understand. All of them had lost family members in the First World War. Each of them was touched by the economic displacement of the time, and none of them knew what was going to happen next. Hitler's rise to power must have been a surprise to them, as it was for most people, since the Nazis had never won a majority in the German Congress, and under Hitler's leadership, they had actually lost ground in the previous election. Probably, like most people in most democracies, they watched and they wondered what the puzzling world of government and policy would become. When Germany went to war in 1939 and he, my cousin, and the young men of his neighborhood were called up, they probably went to their places with no more than the normal grumbling that all soldiers do because their lives are interrupted. And I tell you, knowing that side of my family, I'm certain they all had deep opinions and they didn't mind sharing them with anyone. But I'm sure that they were the conventional ideas of the day. I'll bet they didn't have lengthy discussions about the deep meanings of German life and national purpose. Those things were left to the ones in the know. So my first cousin, twice removed, just went off to do his duty. And as part of his duty, he was a participant in the horror that was Nazi Germany. On his shoulders rested the portion of the ghastly history of the 20th century. He was not an officer or a commander, not a member of the Gestapo or the SS. He was just a Lanzer, a German GI, who followed orders and went where he was told. In truth, he was probably grateful his job ended up being out of the line of fire on the Russian front and in the relatively benign world of Stalags and the POWs that they contained. But in doing what he did, going from his duty from one place to the other where his officers commanded him, he was a cog in the vast machinery of conquest, dishonor, and death. It was his generation and his life in uniform that gave the world the legacy at which we now all shudder. He is my blood, my family, my history. Now, we all know what happened with the Nazis and the German people through the 30s and the 40s. At least we've all read the history books. Whenever there's a discussion about morality, we almost always use them as the example of nearly pure evil. Adolf Hitler began his political life just after the First World War in 1919 and progressed through the chaos following the defeat of Germany until he was made chancellor in 1933 and assumed almost total control of Germany in the following year. All along the way, he spouted the rhetoric of anti-Semitism and national purification as a solution to German defeat and the humiliations of the First World War. And true to his ways and to the surprise of many, when he came to power, he was relentless in realizing his goals. Beginning with the anti-Jewish laws of 1935, the outbreak of war in 1939, and the, the ultimate design of the final solution in 1942, Hitler and the Nazi Party worked to make their political goals come true. It was a bloodbath of the First Order, taking the lives of more than 11 million people in concentration camps, including 6 million Jews that were designated for extermination, and about 40 million more people who died as a result of the war that Hitler began. 
And when school kids are taught about the contours of the 20th century, they're taught how politics and history went wrong in the example of Germany. As the most extreme example of evil run wild, Hitler and his leadership at the helm of Germany is hard to beat. As William Dalrymple writes, it's pretty hard to find anybody who would support what the German chancellor did in his decision to exterminate the Jews. When teaching young people about the lessons of history, this chapter is ultimately convincing. It's an example of decisions that were almost purely evil, all of them magnified and buttressed by the genius and the commitment and the anti-Semitism of the whole German people. And it's a good thing kids are taught such things. They need to know what history has wrought and how wrong things can go when they do go wrong. And they can reinforce their studies with visits to the Holocaust Museum in Washington or, or by hearing the testimony of survivors. This is all the better. It makes history real to them and not just one more thing to read about in boring history books. But with all of this, one part of the lesson is left out a part all of us have to spend more time on. We'll take a little break. I'd like to mention our premier sponsor, McLaren's Pantry. If you'd like to call Kathy Bussender for your catering needs, call her at 405-348-2336 or go by to talk with her about your catering needs at 3414 South Boulevard in Edmond. Back in just a moment. Day by day. Welcome back, Oklahoma, to Living Catholic. I'm Father Don Wolf, pastor at St. Eugene in Oklahoma City. When we talk about the horrific examples that come to us through history, especially the horrific example of, well, the, the German state in the 1930s and 1940s, there's a part of the lesson that we normally get that's left out, a part of us we have to spend more time on. Again, William Dalrymple writes about it. He says, the lesson that we learn is too good. That is, he means the pupil gets the wrong message. For it's easy for the casual student, looking through the images of barbed wire and crematoria, to imagine that evil is easy to spot and, once spotted, ought to be easy to resist. After all, looking at what had happened, who could be for it? The message coming across those lessons is stark. Bad people did bad things in the world. Full stop. The other part of the lesson is the same, which is don't be a bad person. And bad in this context means oppressing people or letting hate run wild. But if that's the only thing that gets taught, the most valuable message of the study of history is left on the table. Because the radical, horrifying truth of history is complicated and intricate, and it's this. Those people who did such awful things, they're like us. We could emulate their example. We could duplicate their outcomes if we don't learn how vulnerable we are to resentment and to fear. We are as vulnerable now as they were then to the temptations to evil. Until we understand the premier fact of history, 
ordinary people make decisions to bring misery and suffering on others, our education is incomplete. Of course, it's easy to imagine that we're all superior to the blandishments of the past. The education of our young people, what they receive, is, after all, taught by us. So when we look at the propaganda of, from Germany in the 1930s, you can get on YouTube right now and see a lot of it. You can go online and look up the triumph of the will. When we see that kind of propaganda about how Jews lived or what the solution to the problems of German politics would be, we can afford to laugh at its crudity and its simplicity. Looking at those old movies doesn't move us. It's hard to imagine how it moved anyone else. But in our laughter, the point is forgotten. It did move the people, and it contributed to their participation in the world's worst evil. Rather than laughing at how gullible the Germans of the time were to their own prejudices and vulnerabilities, we should learn how fragile we are in the face of those who manipulate and terrorize. And it's easy to imagine that we could spot any grave evil among us, which of course means that we would have been able to spot all of the evil of the Nazis and and we would have known what our support of them might lead to which also means we're certain that the Germans of the time were simply perfidious in their support of Hitler and his politics. We imagine any child could see that he was crazy and his obsessions would lead to horror. If we had been there, we're invited to imagine we would have been different. But evil's not like that, and it's important we learn the outlines of real history rather than simply the cartoon version so often presented when we learn history this way, rather than simply a standoff between light and dark, rather than a simple confrontation between the temptation to do evil and the shining possibilities of doing good, the power of evil comes masked and hidden. In the many examples of history, it's very difficult to identify and to resist the power of evil when it's among us. Imagining we would automatically do better that we would resist in ways no one else would have, is worthy only of the basest fantasy. The power of evil is something much more powerful than that. In fact, giving in to such imaginings only make its hidden nature more extreme. Unless we learn the lessons rightly, we're likely to learn exactly the wrong thing. One of the words that we often use to describe evil is insidious. It comes from a Latin root that means to lie in wait or to ambush. And it's a perfect description because one of the powers of evil is its hidden nature. Like a snake waiting to strike, we often don't know it until we come upon it. Even when we beat the bushes and look for it, it remains well hidden, disguised by its background and its nature. That's true especially when it begins to wind its way through our vulnerabilities. Evil hides. Not only that, it takes real skill and patient work to discover it, to name it, and then to resist it. There's also another problem in the midst of widespread evil. It's the sense we have that other people are in charge of our world, and somehow they'll come to our rescue when things become bad. That was particularly effective for the Nazis. There was a significant objection among the people of Germany to Hitler's proposals. He was in no way the choice or the option or the, the, um, the choice of 
more than 50% of the people. Ordinary people weren't all that concerned about international relations and the threats across the horizon. And the elites were convinced that the base energies that the Nazis played on would never affect the most cultured country in the world. They thought that the nation of Schiller and Bach and Beethoven and Brahms would never really give in to all the ramblings of an uneducated zealot like Hitler. That's what they told themselves over and over again. But in the end, everyone in Germany wanted somebody to come to their rescue, especially when it became clear their only result was going to be complete destruction. And whether it was in the 30s when they were worried about what was going to happen to their country and to their humiliation or later in the 40s when they were facing absolute and complete military destruction, they wanted somebody to save them from what was bad. Nobody did. The third characteristic of evil is its ability to hide among the truth. That's especially the case amidst the confusing outlines of society and politics. That's perhaps the most important feature of history that we have to pay attention to because it's easy to make the Germans out to be clowns fawning over the Fuhrer as some kind of hero. But what they did wasn't clownish at all. What if the things that Hitler had to say really struck to the hearts of their concerns? What if what he said addressed their concerns just enough that, well, like an insect that lays an egg that eventually hatches out? Well, Hitler was able to land on their concern and then be able to, to make their concern the sort of fertile ground for the evil that he had to spread. It's terrifying in the, in, to imagine, and in the end, it proved to be true for them. Think about it. When Hitler fanned the flames of fear of communism and Russia, plenty of people knew about what was going on in Russia at the time and were terrified. There were already purges and oppressions on giant scale news of which filled the minds of those on the eastern borders of Germany. When Hitler blamed the countries of the world for oppressing Germany and the German people, there were many people who had been genuinely hurt by the policies of the victorious countries of the First World War. It didn't take much to notice the embers of resentment that were still glowing among almost everyone until those embers could be fanned into flames as well. And when Hitler began to talk about making Germany great again, he knew the entire people had been humiliated by their loss in the previous war. Clearly, when Germany had been at its height in the early 1900s and was on its way to becoming a major European power, both militarily and economically, it didn't happen. Something went wrong, and the people were willing to listen to somebody who promised that he would turn everything upside down because it had already been turned upside down. Turning it upside down would make things right again. There was just enough truth to their complaints, just enough substance to their pain to provide a warm environment for the harsh words and the bitter promises of the Nazis. I have to remember because some of those who heard those words and that those words were directed at were my own family. They were buffeted by the results of the decisions of millions of others, but they had their own part to play as well. We're not permitted to escape from the truth of our day. We live in our world, and all of the world touches us. My own family bears the scars of this time and has to live with the opprobrium of all that happened because it happened in their name. When we invoke the promises of Christ, we invoke them because we need them. 
when Jesus promises salvation and life, he's not talking about the easy gateway into the eternal kingdom of ease and prosperity. Jesus is offering us what we cannot find of our own accord. The promise of God was to enter into the world where real people die, where real people kill, and real politics produce blood and suffering. In this world, Jesus came to open a gateway into hope amidst the hopelessness binding our lives. Hope is real because if it's not, we're lost because we have no defense against the powers at work if we have no hope. But because it is real, we are invited to bring our pains and fears, our desperation and our frustration to God's open arms. Then we can have the courage to name and to know and to act. Until then, we're liable to be putty in another's hands. You know, I've gone to visit several German military cemeteries in Europe, and when I'm there, I always visit the central office. Never have I arrived to look through the binder listing the fallen page after page that I have not encountered a number of wolves or other of the surnames of my family here in Oklahoma. The contingencies of history are real, and some of them are bitter. Knowing these men were caught up in the tides of their time, I know I'm caught up in the tides of my time. What we shall be, a light to the nations and a hope for mankind, or a curse on the generation of men, we don't yet know. But I always grow more and more aware as I grow older of this truth. We are all caught up in the working of a society at which we are at the center, and yet we are distant from what happens. The good that is done and the evil that takes place happens in our name. Which is why, as we turn to the Lord of all goodness and we look on the world as it is, our only hope is to come to him who offers us hope. And in what he offers, we can pour out our resentments, our fear, and we can trust that the Lord has in his hands and in his heart that which we need. Because if we don't, the power of evil, insidious, perfidious, and present as it is, has the power to take us, has the power to move us, and has the power to defeat us. It's in Christ that we have our hope. Back in just a moment. Back Oklahoma to our final segment, Faith in Verse. We have a poem today called Ash Thursday. Is it easy to fade the ashes from the forehead, to brush off the marks of the exhausted and the dead? As if they don't matter, don't mark an actual end, turning the corner at some moment, rounding a bend. Because I see, for days, the outlines of a darkened grainy cross marked out above my eyes, a lent of penance and loss. There noted, not by accident on my wrinkled brow, formed by the residues of my unwilling wise who's and how's, inviting me to pause so I might wait and decide to serve and enter the world of gift and life beyond what I deserve. 
so I can wash more thoroughly, wipe the residue away. But in bowed service, Lent remains, for now, for every day. That's Ash Thursday. Lent is the time when we have the chance to come to know ourselves more and more fully and to know the world around us. That is the challenge after all. What Christ has done is to offer us the gift of life, and it's an offer that stands with us always present to us. It's our option to open our eyes to come to know ourselves, to open our eyes to come to know our world, and to invite Christ into it, the world of our heart, the world of our lives. That's what we'll be investigating on Living Catholic in the weeks to come. I hope you can join us then. Living Catholic is a production of Blue Cardinal Concepts, copyright 2017.